0: The three forces, which I refer to as the technology triumvirate, is 5G, communications technology, the cloud, which is already under development, and Internet of Things, IoT. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see progress in all three of those areas. But the great thing is that there are um, synergies between those three technologies that really create an exciting future for us. Connect, influence, optimize. You're listening to The Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA, the Electronic Component Industry Association. Working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Channel Channel, the podcast brought to you by the ECIA. I'm your host, Bill Bradford. Our guest today is going to be Dale Ford, our Chief Analyst at the ECIA. But before I do that, one announcement I'd like to make. I hope you'll join us on Thursday, November 21st at 11 a.m. Eastern Time for the next installment of our webinar series. This one brought to you by IBM, we're going to be exploring blockchain solution platforms with IBM's TradeLens and Trust Your Supplier platforms. Both of these platforms are available today for our members to leverage and take advantage of blockchain. You can learn a little bit more about what this webinar is going to consist of on our website. You can also go there to register, and that's ecianow.org. I'm here today with our guest, Dale Ford. Dale is our chief analyst here at ECIA, and we're pleased to have him as a guest to talk a little bit about the market conditions and give some of the insight that he gleans from all the different data sources that he's able to uh, look at as part of his role here at ECIA. Uh, Dale, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Bill. Great to be here.
1: We start each show by asking our guests a specific question, which is, what is your favorite word?
0: I would say probably the word I overuse the most is wonderful. <laughs> so I guess maybe that's my favorite as well. Wonderful. All right. <laughs> I like it.
1: So good. So in terms of getting to know you a little bit better for our listeners, I know you're fairly new to ECIA, but um, start just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and about your childhood.
0: All righty. Well, great. I, uh, I originally hail from Utah. I grew up, uh, my parents worked at Hill Air Force Base. And so I uh, grew up under the runway at Hill Air Force <laughs> Base in my early years. Uh, saw lots of uh, F-16 fighter jets taking off and landing and C-5A transports and whatnot. So um, had a lot of uh, fun years there growing up in what was then a very small place compared to what it is now. Then uh, after graduating from high school, went to uh, college, graduated in, uh, with an electrical engineering degree from Brigham Young University. Went out, did design engineering work for about four years. I enjoyed doing that, working on uh, eye tracking systems associated with the flight simulators, and uh, a lot of fun there. Then uh, decided I wanted to take the plunge and go back uh, for a master's of business degree. Went to uh, Wharton, back uh, University of Pennsylvania. Coming yep. out of there, uh, jumped right into the uh, market research space. Uh, joined uh, DataQuest. And uh, was involved with the semiconductor research uh, way back, uh, over 25 years ago now. uh, Worked DataQuest. They were acquired by Gartner Group. Then um, uh, started up, uh, was one of the co-founders of the market research with iSupply. And then iSupply was acquired by IHS when IHS wanted to get into uh, market research associated with the technology space. And uh, uh, following IHS, they were then uh, merged together. With Market, they're now IHS Market, and now I'm with ECIA for the past year.
1: What do you do when you're not analyzing the market? What are some of your pastimes?
0: (laughs) Some of my favorite pastimes, well, I love to read, and I, I especially love history. So I guess mark a research person, that's a good yeah. thing to like, uh, but I uh, love, uh, love history. Just recently picked up uh, one book. Uh, they say it's the, the, the definitive book of World War II and then another book on Thomas Jefferson. Wow. So uh, not long ago, I read a book on John Adams. So uh, I enjoy history, especially early American history.
1: Okay, well, let's, let's get into it a little bit in terms of uh, what's going on out here. So why don't you start by just giving us the status as you see it today of the electronic component industry?
0: Well, today's status, um, there's not a lot of positive news to report. We've gone through a period of a, a strong downturn, actually, in the electronics and electronics components industry that's been felt across the board in all, all categories. And uh, so going back into 2018, we saw a definite decline. Um, and that uh, decline has continued through 2019. And so if you look at the sentiment surveys, and one of the things I'd like to do is just highlight the, the really valuable base of research that's been created at ECIA and that's available for members of the association. Jim Brewerton, working together with others, has really created an impressive set of data, which my sense is perhaps not used as much as it should be. But if you go into that data and you, we have some sources of data that uh, tell us kind of the outlook and the expectations from Asia, we get that working together with our partners at TPC. And then also we have surveys looking more specifically at North America. And in in both areas, um, we see that the the expectations for even going into Q4 are still very, very negative. And so the near-term status and sentiment is we're in a declining period. And uh, the, the sentiment is that that will continue through the end of this year. So um, current status right now is is you know it's not it's a challenging time in the industry but as I'll get to I, I believe that there's some really bright exciting prospects as we look forward.
1: Great, you know you, you mentioned some of the various sources of data that are available through ECA and just so that our members know uh, a lot of the data that's there is for members only and any uh, employee of a member company can create a login ID, going to ecianow.org, create their login ID, and then you have access to everything behind the curtain and all the various uh, data reports. So if you just go to the site, don't see a lot of information there, uh, you'll be surprised by logging in as a member, the amount of data that you can get. But m- moving on then, what, what do you see as the future direction for growth? As we, as, When are we going to come out of this mess? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the, the, they have an old saying that um, when you want to get out of a, a hole, the first step is to stop digging. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and um, all indicators are that we've stopped the digging. We seem to, uh, uh, the decline, while we're still declining, the rate of decline is not continuing down any further than where we're at right now. We seem to have hit bottom in terms of the sense of the growth rate. We're still declining, but at least the rate of decline is not going down. And if we look at the quarter over quarter prior year trends, um, we uh, we appear to be positioning ourselves to start seeing improvement, not growth again, but improvement. And um, if trends hold out, if the, the cycles hold out, uh, we should be able to start breaking uh, into a positive growth territory, perhaps by uh, late spring uh, next year. Maybe the April-May timeframe would be perhaps the best estimate just looking at historical trends. Um, if we look at the semiconductor industry specifically, cycles in the semiconductor industry typically last four years um, from peak to peak or from uh, bottom to bottom, mm-hmm. however you want to measure those. And uh, since we're in our 10th cycle in the semiconductor industry, since the start of that, if we look at data that's a uh, uh, we share the top-line numbers through ECIA, but the data comes from WSTS, World Semiconductor Trade Statistics. And their statistics that go through August at this point. Um, what they published the 1st of October has statistics through August. That 40-month period, we're, we're 40 months into this current cycle. So, you know, history says we've got about another eight months left starting in August, which would take us out to about April, mm-hmm. uh, where we would start to see this, the, the beginning of a new cycle. And that's the annualized growth cycle not the quarter over quarter growth cycle to drive that annualized growth cycle and drive that positive we should expect to start see quarter over quarter growth around the april may time frame would be the expectation there but in addition to that there are important technology trends that uh, set a great uh, uh, prospect course for us in the future Um, every cycle there's a key driver you go back to the earliest days Uh, Of course, consumer electronics, and followed by multiple generations of the PC, and then the the World Wide Web, the Internet, and following on with that with mobile communications and smartphones. And the most recent cycle, interestingly, though, has been very much uh, from the semiconductor perspective, not overall, but driven by the collapse in memory pricing. First, it was an incredible run-up in memory pricing, the demand for memory into not just smartphones, but going into data centers, which have been just growing amazingly to support all these cloud um, offerings that we now are are shifting towards. So we saw a big run-up. Then we saw the collapse in the memory pricing. We saw um, growth in uh, shipments of uh, smartphones, uh, that's stalling out, that growth stalling out. So some of the key drivers stalling out. Mm-hmm. But we now have some really important forces coming together that will help us drive growth that really they start aligning in 2020. What are those? So the three forces, which I refer to as the technology triumvirate, is 5G, communications technology, the cloud, which is already under development, and Internet of Things (IoT), mm-hmm. and uh, we see progress in all three of those areas. But the great thing is that there are um, synergies between those three technologies that really create an exciting future for us. And the development and maturation in all three of those areas, we see reaching a critical point. the The, the, the late comer to the game would be five G. <laughs> IoT, of course, cloud already well underway with developments taking place there. But even with IoT, we're just seeing the beginning of all of the the, the nodes and all of the connections that are going to be uh, um, created over the coming forecast. So while we've seen growth, as they're saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we see exciting growth going forward for, for IoT. But then 5G comes into the picture and, and really – 5G, I see as being the driving engine. 5G is not what prior generations were. We we had first generation, which were analog phones. We had 2G, which was the transition to digital, 3G, 4G. And 3G and 4G primarily were increasing the data rates and the speed of data associated with wireless communications. That's the primary value proposition. There were other things, but you looked at the primary value proposition, That's what they afforded us, and that's what enabled the great performance we get on smartphones now. The thing about 5G is it's much more than just an increase in data rate. 5G has been called a network of networks. It's a unifying framework that brings together all of the applications under one umbrella, ranging from very high data rate, low latency types of applications, to low power, low data rate, Uh, very cost-effective applications, all of these working consistently within one standard. And the expectation is this will be revolutionary in terms of its impact on the, the types of services and products that can be delivered both in a commercial and in a consumer sense, in an industrial sense as well. So this is going to really revolutionize, in my view, Um, the industry and be a powerful driving force for not just shipping new electronics, but driving an upgrade cycle for the current installed base of electronics. Because the new services that will be enabled with the combination of IoT, the cloud, and 5G, the services and the types of solutions that can be created there will drive demand for new hardware that can support those. And so I see new architectures in electronics coming out. And it won't be a nice-to-have type of situation. It will be a need-to-have situation. Consumers will see it as a need-to-have. But um, uh, but it will be a need-to-have where we'll see a great upgrade cycle going, not just penetrating new markets, but upgrading the current installed base of many electronic systems.
1: Interesting. So what are some examples of the applications that this triumvirate 5G and the cloud and the IoT. What what are some examples people can
0: expect to see over the coming years? So the near term, and the, and what's capturing all of the headlines right now, of course, are the mobile handsets. And we have the earliest handsets being introduced and sold this year. We had some pre-5G types of solutions being introduced, and and uh, we're starting to see the early reviews come back from you know analysts and others who are reviewing these early 5G products. And so the earliest headlines are captured by mobile handsets, and here we're talking about extremely low latency—that's you know important for gaming applications in those settings—and uh, very high data rates, so you can have much richer, higher resolution video content, etc., all in these mobile platforms. So that's the near-term thing, and that—that that is exciting in and of itself. But now, if we come to this broader realm of where we can now start capturing information from a wide array of sensors that go out. So if you go into an industrial environment, you now have the ability to place sensors onto uh, a very wide range of factory floor equipment, where you're measuring performance of the equipment, throughput of product, you're measuring, even down to like vibrations that can give an early indicator for um, uh, need for service in equipment and things of that nature. Now you're putting this, take, capturing this data, putting it in in a very low cost. Again, it doesn't have to be a low power thing so they, they can be, last a long time. And then you capture this, you bring all of this into a, a cloud solution so the people responsible for managing this factory or this network of factories now have incredible visibility that helps them optimize what their uh, their operations and have and generate potentially significant cost savings. There was was a great example that that goes back a number of years, but um, I think it applies here. General Electric, world's largest supplier of windmills. And they talked about the benefits they have of applying sensors on these windmills that they put around, right? Wind energy and, and what can be driven there. And with the, the, the modeling that they've done, the big data concepts that are developed, the, 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 it's really a new science of big data. They're able to take these individual windmills and they can determine what is the optimal rate to run that windmill at. They know what is the, the price per kilowatt of energy at a given time. They can see if we run this windmill at 110%, we know it will reduce it by you know this percent in its lifetime. but. What's the trade-off in terms of additional revenues it generates. So they're able to optimize their investments in windmills, the operators of these. And that's done by having these sensors, it's done by capturing the data in a cloud and real time saying this is the performance, this is the wind, these are the energy prices and you can optimize things that way. It has, op- uh, of course, we have optimization and security applications And even in the consumer experience, if you have a consumer going through um, in in a purchasing environment, uh, there's a balance, of course, between privacy and what consumers are willing to give up that way. But the entire consumer purchasing shopping experience, whether it's going out into a, a physical store or whether they're doing something online, again, the sensors and everything that comes into play really facilitates. And then where we're involved with supporting the distribution community into the distribution world. You're able to track and and follow what's taking place with shipments and monitor it again and optimize the supply chains and how those are operating. So there are just so many areas that come into play when we look at the ability to communicate either at extremely high data rates, high volumes of data or extremely low cost, but very valuable and, uh, you know, lower data rates of data so that we can be measuring and managing so many more aspects of our physical environment.
1: You mentioned that uh, this, this explosion uh, of the triumvirate is gonna also require uh, new hardware. Um, it's gonna demand new hardware. What are some of those opportunities that our members, our component manufacturers, for, for example, are gonna have to keep in mind in terms of delivering on new technologies to support
0: this? So if we look at this, the, the radios that go into these products now here I'm going to go on the higher end products with the the, the, the mobile smartphones etc if you look at these you know we thought we had additional costs that would go into these smartphones associated with you know uh, more antennas and maybe a, you know two three four uh, different potential frequencies that these radios would go over now with the radio technology that we're putting in place the millimeter wave technologies with a millimeter wave. It's much more susceptible to um, interference and whatnot. And so within these handsets, there's much more investment in terms of antennas, in terms of RF components and everything that goes into these products. So if we look at uh, the cost profile of a smartphone, If you look at teardowns that have already been done, there's a much more significant investment that has to take place in that, what we call the front end, the RF portion of these phones. Now, we can't just pass that cost completely along to the consumer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The consumers, you know, there's elasticity, so the consumers have a price point. We push that. We've got smartphones, amazing, as it seems, that cost over $1,000 now. Crazy. But there is a limit, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to have a trade off. So, whereas big driver in the past in terms of smartphones has been the applications processor and the baseband processor, you can't just expand the cost indefinitely. If you're going to invest more in the RF portion, the front end portion, you're going to have to save cost on the back end. The great thing is with the radios we're doing, we can do more of this processing back on the cloud. You don't have to do it in the handset. So I would look for cost optimization to take place in the application processor and in the baseband and see more of that shifting to the cloud where you have that processing power available in the data centers and see more opportunity on the upside in the RF, analog, discrete types of components, the filters, the antennas, those types of elements are going to see growth that is going to be demanded. And on the low-cost side, again, we've seen already some increase in shipments in sensors and in some of the low-cost radios, but the volumes that we see the opportunities taking place will grow there significantly. Now, in terms of price, the, the, the price points of, of those sensors and of those components are very low. So in terms of total revenues, it's not going to be as great. But the thing is, is we're now feeding this demand for more processors, more memory, more storage in the data centers. So I would look for data centers to create opportunities for growth. So Yes, high volume with the low cost components, not driving the high levels of revenue, where the revenue still comes from will be with consumer products and with the data centers where we still have all the issues we have to deal with in data centers, with communications, with cooling, with you know processing, all of those areas I see as great opportunities for revenue growth going forward.
1: Right, interesting. So it sounds like the future least long term, is still very bright with the emergence of all these technologies and the growth. What causes you concern right now?
0: The the number one most significant concern is is not it won't be a surprise to anybody. It's cybersecurity. And uh, cybersecurity will simply grow in its importance as we see more value <laughs> generated and created in the digital world. Um, you know, the old thing well why do you rob banks well that's where the money is right (laughs) well in our digital world there is so much value i'm not talking just bitcoin i'm talking the incredible value in terms of the information that exists there that you know there's different motivations there's criminal motivations there's terrorist motivations there's government espionage motivations there's all kinds of motivations that drives um the hacking activity that takes place in the cyber world but we have to find a reasonable level of security and privacy that has to be established for some of these applications to really go forward and grow. One of the biggest targets, for example, in cyber crime today is interestingly enough, the healthcare industry. People are going out, attacking hospitals, getting those data, getting that data, getting those records, and you know that's the current risk. But let's say we have somebody on a pacemaker and the doctor wants to be able to monitor that pacemaker. Well, you've got to be awfully sure that there's nobody that can go in. We've seen movies that have kind of had the horror story. Well, I can mess with the pacemakers, right? right. Um, but, but anything that's life-critical, and some of these become life-critical, will be life-critical, you have to have just robust security. For, for example, another application beyond medical applications, look at autonomous vehicles. If you're really going to turn things over to an autonomous vehicle, you have to have that confidence in the cybersecurity. You can't have somebody hacking into that. So growth of the autonomous vehicle space, as I've talked to the analysts in the automotive space, going back three, four years, they were already pointing to cybersecurity as the most significant issue that has to be solved if we're really going to see the development of autonomous vehicles on a large scale. Right. So if we look at the cybersecurity, I could go on for a long time. There, there are many important issues that have to be dealt with there. In fact, I remember it was a, not many years ago at one of the ECIA executive conferences where there was a presentation, uh, a white hat mm-hmm. <laughs> hacker, one of the good guys, talking to the industry about how the industry really needed to take cybersecurity much more seriously than they have. And I still think that that need exists. So cybersecurity is the number one concern, I think, that, that could impede the growth of this 5G IoT cloud world that we're talking about. Then if we look beyond that, there's other critical issues with intellectual property protection. You know, we have to be able to have confidence that if we're investing in something, we can get the return on our investment. You know, Investment, intellectual property, is the lifeblood of electronics and technology if people feel they can't get a return on that investment if it's going to be stolen, we put a put at risk the investments we need to continue driving the technologies forward. Yep. So intellectual property protection is really critical and and uh, again I I won't go into any more depth on that now. Uh, One that's near and dear to everybody's heart in the electronics components industry is counterfeit. Right. And uh, if we look at counterfeiting, We continue to wage the battles there, Uh, we find many valuable solutions but um, there continue to be new ways, uh, approaches to counterfeiting products that come into place. Um, One another area that's captured a lot of headlines is uh, free trade. Um, I would argue that the electronics industry has been one of the greatest beneficiaries of the free trade uh, environment that's been created you can really go back and look at the acceleration and growth overall of the electronics industry and revenues and you can point to the dynamics associated with free trade with that and so we have a lot going on in that space right now whatever solution comes out the other end we have to have a solid trading environment going forward if, if that falls apart that becomes a problem and then one final thing I'd point to that I look at as a real risk is the balkanization of the Internet, is what I call it. Mm-hmm. And these and I should note that in two papers that are published up on um, our statistics uh, site on ecia.org, um, there's uh, two papers, one that addresses the bright future we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Then there's another one just addressing these risks. Right. And I, I address all these in more detail, but cybersecurity, we see China right now. It's not a new development, but they have a different philosophy, a different approach to the Internet, what they allow in terms of uh, the flow of communication, access to to information. And um, they view that this is a, a privilege granted by the government that should be regulated, managed very closely by the government. It a very diametrically opposed view to that compared to what Western societies uh, and the the philosophies that have driven the Internet and Western societies. But we're seeing more governments, more areas where they would favor more of China's approach to the Internet. And if we start setting up barriers to communication between countries, that balkanization of the Internet creates a real potential difficulty in all these uh, software-as-a-service, XaaS types of, of solutions that we want to drive with the cloud. If we're putting up barriers... Um, then that makes this much more regionalized, maybe even more country-specific. That can be a good thing when you're trying to meet the needs of a specific market. But when you're trying to, again, going back to the free trade, open market type of concept, there's real benefits that come from the more open environment of the Internet. And so uh, it's something that's not its much farther down the list in terms of concerns related to the others, but it's one to keep an eye on.
1: Dale, I know our members have really appreciated the in-depth analysis that you've been providing to the ECIA and your comments here today. Uh, We certainly plan to have you as a regular on the show so we can go into a lot of these in more detail and really keep a pulse on the market as it continues to evolve here and hope uh, that the prediction for return to health uh, next year comes true.
0: (laughs) We're all hoping for it.
1: (laughs) All right, Dale. Well, thanks again very much for being a guest on this episode, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode. I want to just remind you to please join us on Thursday, November 21st, for our webinar series featuring IBM, where we will explore blockchain solutions with their trade lens and trust-your-supplier platforms. Also, listen to the next episode of the Channel Channel, which will come out on December 2nd, where our guest will be Rob Kirch, the Vice President of Distribution for Vichy. Rob is also the Chairman of the Manufacturing Council at the ECIA. In the meantime, Happy Thanksgiving everybody.